I opened episode one of this podcast with a sad little cameo about my tear-soaked Trans-Canada plane trip in early July 2020. I was not at ease with the proximity of the guy sitting next to me. Do you really need to put your arm on the seat divider, dude? Uncomfortable in my home-sewn mask. And so, so distraught at the carnage in our long-term care homes. Even though I've always been a scholar who led with my heart, it took me most of the summer to figure out where I might take those feelings. I'm so grateful to the good folks at Simon Fraser University who hand out Shadbolt fellowships to people who dream up creative responses to major concerns of our time. I love this fellowship. COVID in the House of Old, Episode 6, Radical Futures in Elder Care. I'm your host, Megan Davies. This episode follows the trajectory of my thoughts that began on my trip west in July 2020. It argues that we need to do elder care better, and we need to do it very differently. That Canada and Canadians must radically review what we have to offer in terms of our elders, who will someday be us. Whether or not we want to face it, that's the reality. This has been a time of such tragedy, but it's also a moment for aspirational thinking. In April 2020, the Royal Society of Canada's Working Group on Long-Term Care pushed out a pretty compelling report that was a real call to action. They detailed the great suffering that was taking place in the long-term care sector. They acknowledged that the lives that were lost were valuable lives. Settler Canadians failed their elders, and it didn't have to happen. We have the knowledge, we have the capacity, and we have the resources. So, as the authors of the Royal Society report stressed, we have a duty at this point, at this historical moment, to revisit and to fix what is essentially a broken system and to restore trust in long-term care. I always think of this story of um, there was a home, it was the original Mount Sinai Hospital that was in the middle of Yorkville in the 60s, and you know, which was hippie haven. And there was outrage saying, oh, we have to move these old people out of uh, this you know, terrible scene in Yorkville. And the residents said, are you kidding? This is more interesting than it's been for years. We want to be here in the action. We want to be here where things are happening. And saying, oh, you know, lots of pe- people around, even if they are high on something. So Atua Gwande, in his book, Being Mortal, talks about burning down long-term care homes. You'd think we'd have burned nursing homes to the ground, he wrote. And he calls on society to reimagine long-term care. Yeah, well, I think we're stuck with some version of long-term care. I don't believe we can obliterate these institutions. But I think we need to stop believing in several things about long-term care. I think we need to stop believing that it's okay. I think we need to stop believing that there's not enough money, that there's not other ways to do things. So I'm really glad to have Albert Banerjee with me today. And Albert's a critical gerontologist. And I'm happy to note that because I think we need people who are able to think critically and imaginatively about this topic. 
So Albert joins me from St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, where he has a research chair. So now, what do you think? At the heart is is care and the place of care in our society. And I think in terms of reimagining long-term care, I would also say intergenerational efforts. You know, we're bringing co-housing, um, bringing in young volunteers to, to nursing homes, creating homes where young volunteers would want to actually be. And then maybe they'd want to work there when they grew up. I think they should be in the center of the community, not outside on the edge of town. It would be so much more interesting for residents. I also like the idea of putting a long-term care facility next to a daycare so that, like you said, life would come into long-term care more easily. It would not be so cut off. And it becomes synergistic. Uh, Then you want to visit. I mean, I remember my grandmother was in a care home. It was traumatizing to visit her, so I would avoid visiting her. It really took something to go there. Um, And if we can make it so that it's actually pleasant to visit, it'll be more pleasant to live there and work there, I suspect. Oh, yeah, I I think so. I think so. You mean if we can remake those institutions into places that are regarded as important civic institutions and an important part of our society, then people will want to work there, they'll want to live there, people will want to go there, and their families will be okay, will feel okay about their elders going into long-term care instead of feeling guilty and shitty like they've done something wrong. And it should be a place that sustains elders and doesn't cut them off from the world. I met Albert when I worked on a wonderful project about long-term care more than a decade ago. I thought the idea of ferreting out the most promising practices that were out there through visiting care facilities all over the global north was a brilliant approach. Two linchpin researchers on the project were York University sociologist Pat Armstrong and Canadian historian Jim Struthers. They also had a lot to say about this village model. It's fantastic to make it, to think more creatively in ways of mixing them together. I also think we have to start desegregating in the sense of the latest thing that's supposed to be the wonderful operation is a campus of care, as you know, where you have uh, rental housing and assisted living and uh, nursing homes all in one campus. And you can certainly share resources that way, and it's better than lots of other options. But it also puts all the old people here in one place, right? Instead of bringing the community in Instead of thinking about how can we have, how can we have younger people around? How can we mix ages and groups of people in ways that uh, that works for all of them? I, in Sweden, where we saw student residences in the same building as the as the nursing home. The best place I ever visited was in Norway, and that's what it was. It was a space in a smaller city of about twenty thousand. They built their new long-term care unit into an existing community center. With the, already had a huge multiplex theater, a rock climbing wall, Olympic-sized swimming pool, a children's library, music lesson rooms, activity rooms for people living up 
just outside the home in the retirement and assisted living part of the home. So people were always coming in and out. You couldn't tell whether anyone was a resident, a visitor. Children were coming in to go to the children's library, to go swimming, to go to a movie, to take grandfather or grandmother out to the ice cream parlor right around the corner. It was an integrated environment. Uh, if I could have booked a reservation for in the next 10 years or down the road, I, could have, I would have done it, except I'm not a Norwegian citizen. But I'm saying these are living, real, publicly funded, you know, anyone, no mean, you know, equal to everyone, but just good design, smart design, smart thinking, and uh, we could be doing that. What Jim is talking about reminds me of Canada's ongoing housing crisis. To me, as a parent of millennials, I wonder if they will ever have a secure home. And I lament the demise of cooperative housing as a realistic option for Canadians. So I went to a dreamy Scandinavian place where we could simultaneously provide our elders and our youth with meaningful places to live, littered with saunas and opportunities for cross-country skiing. Pretty aspirational. Jim said we had some lost opportunities for this sort of stuff in Ontario. We saw homes in Toronto that had been municipal homes where they used to have cafeterias that were open on the first floor to uh, visiting populations and or outside visitors in assisted living homes nearby. They were closed down 10 years ago because uh, they were not considered to be money-making ventures. And what that did was just close out the outside world coming into the municipal homes that are located right downtown uh, or people living in assisted living who might be neighbors or relatives coming over and seeing their friends and getting them down from the dining room and having a, an informal lunch with them in the cafeteria. Pat, Albert, and Jim are talking about a very different kind of long-term care facility, one that is a dynamic place where you want to be, a place that is integrated into the local community. Interestingly, when I put this visionary question to Noreen Grange, the RN who engineered Ontario's biggest long-term care pandemic response, at Toronto's Castleview Towers. She also looked to a campus of care and lamented the loss of those cafeterias. So Noreen, what's your fantasy of a much better place for residents and for staff? Um, I, I think uh, ideally have enough space where you can have like a Tim's on-site, um, a medical clinic on-site. So a medical center where there's physio, and all these different things that if staff or whoever wants to, you know, utilize, have food. Where we are at, we don't have a cafeteria anymore, like where we can purchase food, because that was closed in the first Ford era. Uh, they closed all our cafeterias in on site. A restaurant where the residents that can go for coffee or they want to go eat something different can just go and get whatever food they choose to buy and not having to necessarily leave the property, but just a little bit of a drive. Because a lot of them use motorized wheelchairs, which is good. They can scoot all over, you know, just something. Have a gym on site for staff to be able to use. So I think Noreen, Jim and Pat are all talking about village life. We are all village people. We are social beings and we like a view into the social worlds of others. That social reciprocity feeds our souls. It makes us human. This came out loud and clear in my conversation with Jim Struthers when I asked him to do a bit of blue sky thinking. So 
if we are to reform, uh, let alone revolutionize or reimagine long-term care, long-term residential care, to make it more compassionate, to make it more successful, to make it pleasant, to make it more exciting for residents and for staff and for family members, which it can be, and which we've seen it can be. Care is a relationship. High-quality long-term care is relational care. And what that means is it's social care. The most important part of the experience of providing good care is the quality of the relationship between the caregivers and the care receivers. How well do they know each other? How well do the staff know this resident? What do they like to do? What kind of music do they like? What kind of stories would they like to tell you about their own life? If they have memory issues, what kind of conversations can you start up and have with them that will play to the strengths of their memory rather than magnify loss of memory? And a lot of that requires knowing who the person was. Secondly, their physical vulnerabilities. How much can they do? How much risk can you let them take? Do you have to confine them to a wheelchair? Different ways of physically restraining them to reduce your risks of a fall as opposed and having a fall reported as opposed to reducing their ability to tap their feet to music or to, uh, to move down the hallway to see someone they'd like to visit. So there's all, all the things we've seen about social care. I mean, a staff who know residents and enough staff to have the time to take when they're getting a resident out of bed in the morning, getting them ready, bathed, dressed, taken to be fed. How much time does staff have to talk? to laugh, to tell jokes. Relationships are critical, but so are working conditions. Judith is the kind of smart, motivated, caring young person that I wish there was a place for in our elder care system. Trained as a PSW or personal support worker, as care aides are called in Ontario, she worked first in long-term care, but she decamped to an East Toronto hospital because working in long-term care was just too hard, was physically draining and personally soul-destroying. Listen to Judith's prescription for a better long-term care system and her reminder that we need to build this for ourselves. So I would say in an ideal world, and I have a facility that's uh, trying to do that, in an ideal world, I would say adequate pay. No PSW in 2021 should be getting under $20. Whether you're in care home, agency, none of them should be getting under $20. So I would say adequate pay, 20 to 26 will be lovely. And staffing, whereby on a 30-unit staff, you have four PSWs on one side and two nurses. So it's not too much work. So I would definitely say this idea of RNs being managers is ridiculous. They need to stop it. RNs should be able to go look at the patients as well. It should be patient-centered. So definitely that. And I would say with the administration, they're also just like a bunch of people who are just worrying about staffing. Very rude, very... There is no space to connect as employees in long-term care facilities. It's always like there's, there's just so much distance, connectedness. I mean, it would increase accountability, it would increase dialogue. Perhaps they could even listen to the to the staff that are working. And I can tell from what the ministry was saying, they didn't even consult with any PSW, any. So yeah, I think changing the system begins with, they just think like, how would you wanna be taken care of when you're in a long-term care facility? 
And a lot of people are going to be in long-term, including Doug Ford. He would be in a facility. Maybe they should make long-term um, home care part of, like, I don't know, public, where they they own it, and then they PSWs they hired under the, the federal or the provincial. And that will be great benefits. That will be great pay. Jim and Judith are talking about long-term care, but it doesn't take much to apply these ideas to elder care outside of long-term care community supports for older people living independently. My own research on home support leads me to think that we need to beef up that service and make it fully public. Sweden and Denmark have both made a real success of that and saved a ton of money in the process. And in fact, when BC put into place its long-term care program in the late 1970s, Home support was intended to be the cornerstone of the service. Now, about 80% of elder care funding in Canada goes towards residential care, and older people who experience a significant health crisis rarely get the option of staying at home, unless they can pay for that higher level of care themselves. That's the reverse of the Scandinavian countries that I'm talking about where they focus funding on creating viable living opportunities for people outside of institutions. Returning to where we began and doing a restart would be a good idea. Andrew Sixsmith is a social gerontologist that isn't afraid of looking outside the particular category of old age. He has an interest in aging across the lifespan. He had a rather provocative and, I thought, really interesting point to make which is that our funding goes to elderly people who are in poor health. He argues that instead, we need to invest where we can maximize our funding. Our focus has been predominantly, as you quite rightly say, on people who are frail, who are very old, like my father, etc., etc. We've got to remember that the vast majority of older people, and if we use the typical age category of 65 and over, that the vast majority of people aged 65 and over are fairly healthy, pretty active, and independent. Even amongst, um, even amongst people who are getting up there, the, you know, aged 80 and above, still, again, most people are living at home, okay? There's only about probably maybe 5 to 7% of older people living in long-term residential care. So it's still a very tiny minority. Even when we look at things like dementia, okay, I can quote your chapter and verse once I've had a chance to look at the literature. We're forgiving on this podcast. But you see where I'm going with this. Can we put those kind of chronic diseases and the things that really impact on our, on our health and our quality of life as far as possible down our lifespan? Right, so that everybody can enjoy a long and, and healthy life and quality of life. Now, if we look at it in those terms, we can support independence and well-being across the lifespan. That, and that's what I'm particularly interested in. There are some significant opportunities here. The Lancet, which is one of the leading medical journals in the world, published last year a long report on dementia suggested that up to 40% of the dementia prevalence 
could be delayed or offset. Okay, more community-based support and services that we adopt a healthier lifestyles, then that's going to have a dividend for us as individuals down the line in terms of better brain health, better cognitive health, less dementia down the lifespans. That will also have the benefit of reducing demands on our overstretched healthcare services and on our family informal caregivers. So if there was a win-win scenario that I've ever seen, that is one of them, right? So that's what we should be working towards. This sounds very much like what I recently read in Aging with Dignity, Innovation and Challenge in Sweden, a nice slim book on Sweden's radical shift to community-based elder care in the 1990s. It was refreshing to go from talking with Andrew to meet a young professional in the field who articulates Andrew's ideas with such enthusiasm. Currently an activity worker at Hilltop House in Squamish, B.C., Michelle LeBlanc is a person just waiting to put physical fitness and social supports in place across the later life. It's perhaps not a coincidence that Michelle graduated a few years ago from the gerontology department at Simon Fraser, where Andrew teaches. If you, Michelle LeBlanc, were running the world, what would it look like? Well, let's stick to the sea to sky region, maybe. The world is too big. But, you know, some ideas that I would have to implement would be in a place like Squamish, we have a very youth focused government. And so, for example, I can tell you that the majority of the programs and services that are offered largely cater to younger demographics. And and there are currently a lot of discussions around what's being offered for the senior population, which is very limited. There's a bit of an uprising, I'm noticing, in terms of the older demographic in Squamish, wanting more programming and and more services. I think a lot of the times local governments or health authorities wait until it's too late to start implementing these programs. So whether it's active aging programs to maintain mobility and maintain mental and emotional health, we just don't really have the resources. And, and so if I were running the world, I would, you know, start with trying out and evaluating different innovative solutions to maintain social engagement. I see it in in Squamish. They're very involved in volunteerism. They're very involved in community groups. But I'd like to see ways in which we can create better programming, especially in rural communities, that will help people age in place to keep people out of long-term care. I think a lot of people internalize their ageism and and assume, oh, I'm too old to go rock climbing or mountain biking and so forth. And so I think you have to offer those programs because I think there's a large percentage of the population that may not have the self-efficacy to just jump right in. So build it and they will come. (laughs) So we've covered home support, building up health profiles over the lifespan, and the connection between recreation and positive elder identities. Andrew, now you're a person who's put a tremendous amount of energy over your career 
into technologies and aging. What are promising technological advances in elder care? To support independent living, these are the sorts of things that AgeWell is doing. AgeWell is Canada's aging and technology network. Uh, we have uh, researchers from pretty much every university across Canada. We have connections with industry, with government, and most importantly, with uh, a very large number of older adults themselves who are active participants in the research program. How can we use uh, technology to deliver better healthcare services, particularly in the community? We have a project in AgeWell um, called FamilyNet, which has really been about providing a very, very easy to use tablet-based application uh, for older people who might have these uh, the, you know, technology challenges to use to, to be able to connect with, um, uh, with their loved ones. It's been trialled in long-term residential care facilities to, to, uh, to help people connect. I stopped working in long-term care. I don't do research there anymore. Um, I've put a, I put it aside. I had a meeting with our Minister of, of Social Development who deals with long-term care to talk about for-profits and not-for-profits. And there's no way there's too much money involved in, profit, in the profit sector for this to change. And, and they hobnob with the government officials, right? They're, they're all buddies. And Canadians have to stop believing that it's okay to monetize the care of vulnerable people. For-profits have to go. It just doesn't work to commodify care. Governments need a clear no on this one. Until we as a population say this has to stop, it won't. And there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah, I mean, it's imperative that home care and long-term care be guaranteed and be properly funded by the government. In the late 70s, the federal government targeted funding, so the money that they gave to the provinces had to be spent on elder care. And they also said, although they didn't require it, but they said that they didn't want the care to be delivered by for-profit facilities. So I think the federal government just has to step up on this one. It really does. I don't think the federal government will unless the citizens are forcing it, unfortunately. Because even in my interviews with local provincial government, unless there's political will by the citizens and voters, they're not going to touch it. How do we create political will for elder care? That's why it's important to start thinking about care more generally um, in terms of home care for people who are disabled, for instance, or frail. I mean, why is there a difference? I think we really need to think about the place that care in society and, and, and the kinds of supports we provide, regardless of whether it's old, young, or middle-aged. I think we need to talk about care. We silo these things. So, you know, you can get your wheelchair paid for under the Disability Act until you're 65, and then it stops when you're six, 65. Because policies change, even though you still need a, a wheelchair. Yes, and I think that elderly people need to connect with that disability rights discourse. And their families need to as well. For me, I felt that when my mother had Parkinson's, that she would have been empowered if she'd been connected with disability rights. But it just wasn't how she was seeing herself. And yet, 
she did see herself as disabled, but she just didn't see herself as part of a group or deserving of, of extra support because she was disabled. So one of the things is, why don't elder care advocates and disability advocates come together? The whole care economy is based to a large degree on the free labor of women. And that's another problem here, because that isn't valued in our society. You know, it's a moment when putting care on the public agenda in a big way would be appropriate. And, you know, hopefully the fact that, you know, here in New Brunswick, we were having trouble breathing there because of the fires in British Columbia. Maybe that's putting some attention to the place of care in the world uh, and COVID. You know, hopefully these crises, the opportunity is that we, we start to value care more. I'd like political theater and radical, you know, like radical actions. I have fantasies that everybody in Victoria would wheel their elderly person down to the legislative lawn in front of the legislative building and say, okay, I'll be back later today. To me, there is a need for a really bold, innovative, action-orientated movement. I, I think you're absolutely right. And maybe bring these groups together, unions and disability rights activists, seniors advocates. I think that forming a coalition would be would be important, I think, to bring these concerns together. And if Pat and Jim were here, they would say that in Ontario, we should call on family councils in long-term care who have been galvanized and maybe even radicalized by the long lockdown. And I note that across the country in BC, seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie is also calling for family councils to be institutionalized as advocates and experiential experts. And of course, every province must have a seniors advocate with the capacity and inclination to be as out there as Isabel McKenzie has been. I think it's an, there's an opportunity now to reimagine long-term care and care in general. I would like to think COVID has taught us a number of lessons and that we might not forget them, but build on them. More to your point about long-term care and whether we reimagine it or burn it down, we will need some form of specialized care for people who can't remain at home. But it's important to see this as a continuum of care. And one of the, the hopes I would have when we reimagine it is we recognize how important care is across the board, starting with child care, starting with care for adolescents or people who are coming out of the house, coming into universities or taking the first steps. What, what are the supports for people there? As we move through life, we're, we're all differently abled and things happen. What kind of support is there? We, we need to think of a continuum of care. When we're having elections, we talk about the economy, about growth. I think we need to start centering care. I really agree with you. I think we need to have an ethic of care. We need to see care as part of our civic enterprise, the way that we engage with other people, and to see it as a responsibility, like a social responsibility, part of our community. So you watch out for each other and you take care and you see where care is needed. You see 
elders as important. So across the generations, we need to acknowledge the importance of elders in our communities. You know, that they bring, retired elders bring money into communities. They bring jobs. They bring energy and they have time for volunteering and community projects. We also have to cultivate a disbelief in restraint and the mantra that there isn't enough money, that we can't afford this. And I think this idea that you're pointing to about the idea that the money is is there and that it's important to find, I think, is really essential because if we don't provide care to save money, we end up paying for it later. Um, and the cost is harsher. It's It's always more expensive to clean up a mess than to prevent it. And having care there enables us to flourish. Having care there allows us to flourish as as people. And policy can lead society. Exactly. The ethos of care is built in, and it's built in recognizing that it supports everybody to live well, and that that has to be there. Otherwise, you're you're spending all your time filling in gaps. You're not you're not actually having a life. I spent the fall of 2021 interviewing families whose loved ones had died in long-term care, workers in the sector, survivor residents who had made it through the long lockdown. These were epic and often heartbreaking conversations. But astonishingly, these folks were also looking to a better system. Connected to this podcast series is a traveling storytelling exhibit that gives voice to these narratives. Karen, a Squamish Nations woman who became a long-term care resident after a stroke in her early 60s, was hoping that her band would build their own facility in time for her. Worker Esther told me that when she has time to connect with residents, quote, you feel in your heart this is the best day ever. Courtney liked the setup at her grandmother's assisted living facility. You knew this was grandma's home a stark contrast to the, quote, wow, this is so depressing, medicalized institution where her life ended. Joy, whose husband Bob died at Lynn Valley when COVID took its first long-term care residence, set out a clear mandate. A lot of these places, they need a complete overhaul. It's the way things are managed and something else that they should be trying. And what is fascinating and so hopeful to me is the way that the family, worker, survivor interviews and the podcast interviews map onto the same page. Care is central. Sociologist Rachel Barkin makes a compelling argument for seeing care not just as an action or an emotion, but as an ethic. At this historical moment, an ethic of care needs to be there as a baseline shaping every health and social policy and program, not just for the elderly, but for people with disabilities, mental health differences, for Indigenous children, refugees, the unhoused, and yeah, for sure, our environment. Rights are wrapped up in an ethic of care. But as episode five of the series makes clear, Remembering is going to be important as we move forward. 
and community is critical. We need to do more, and we need to do it differently. This podcast series has fleshed out joys, something else. Let's take a look at our shopping list. We need a public elder care system, one that sustains good health and full lives, with a continuum of care from independent living to the end of life. We need hospitable residential care facilities that are set in the heart of communities, divided into well-staffed resident worker pods. We need facilities to adopt rights-based institutional practices that support dignity, diversity, and respectful care relationships. We need hospice to be integrated within residential care for the frail elderly. We need sacred spaces and ritual in long-term care to honor the dead and comfort the grieving. None of this will happen if we don't get involved. Writing letters, generating petitions, and protesting publicly, politicians do not make change unless they are pushed. Both Nora Loretto and Ethel Tongohan stress that the next five years are going to be critical in this regard. It's a moment to put a care-first agenda forward. So obvious and, my favorite, truly radical, but in a sneaky way. Revolutionizing elder care can bring together a broad lobby group, including elders, seniors advocates and organizations, long-term care residents, workers from across the elder care sector, family members, volunteers, geriatric professionals, and researchers. But we also need to create noisy coalitions with people living with disabilities or mental health differences, with housing advocates, and with childcare, immigrant, and climate activists. In her long, beautiful song, It Won't Take Long, a lyrical rant about system change by West Coast singer-songwriter Farron, she stresses the power of disbelief, the importance of asking why and saying no, of collective action, and of emotion, of course. I leave you with this wise woman. They said some men would be warriors, and some men would be kings, and some men would be owners of land, and other men made things. And false love is the eternal flame would move some to think in rings. And gold would be our power and other foolish things. But you who dream of liberty must not yourselves be fooled. Before you get to plea for freedom, you have agreed to be enrolled. And if the body stays a shackle, then the mind remains a chain that'll link you to a destiny whereby all good souls are slain. And it won't take long. That was episode six of COVID in the House of Old, hosted by me, Megan Davies. This episode featured the voices of Albert Banerjee, Judith, 
Noreen Grange, Michelle LeBlanc, Jim Struthers, Andrew Sixsmith, and Pat Armstrong. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. It featured music by Hiroki Tanaka and Farron. This project would not be possible without the support of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. And as I stand before you now, I am hopeful in my rage. You know, love has finally called for me. I will not wilt upon its stage. But still smaller than my nightmare now do I print upon the page. Do we have to live inside its walls to identify the cage? Because it takes so long. You know, grief will come in measures. Only grief alone will know. But you'll see it on your family. And on your own face, it will grow. And they'll try to keep you hungry. And they'll tell you to eat snow. You know, pride can be a moving thing if we learn the strength of no. On one day coming, human strength will fill the streets of every city on our planet. We will hear the sound of angry feet. And with business freezed up in the harbor, the kings will pull upon their hair. And the banks will shudder to a halt. The artists will be there. Because it won't take long. It won't take long. It won't take long. And division between the peoples will disappear that honored day. And though oceans lie between us, lifted candles light the way. Join their hands by moonlight and the rest under a rising sun. As underneath the sun and moon, a ritual wailing has begun. And beware, you Sega diplomats, for you will not hear one gun. And though our homes be torn and ransacked, we will not be undone. For as we let ourselves be bought, we're going to let ourselves be free. And if you think we stand alone, look again, and you will see. Look again, and you will see. We are children in the rafters. We are babies in the park. We are lovers at the movie. We are candles in the dark. We are changes in the weather. We are snowflakes in July. We are women grown together. We are men who easily cry. We are words not quickly spoken. 
with a deeper side of pride. We are dreamers in the making. We are not afraid of why. We are not afraid of why. We are not afraid of why. And I will not be complacent. I will not be complacent. Will you be complacent? Will you be complacent?